0: You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Monday, 29 October, and yes, I'm back in the hot seat. It's great to be back on Chaya and It's great to be back with a brand new show, Confidential Brief, the show that's going to have absolutely no sacred cows and no holds barred. We have a great uh, session lined up for you today. My first guest is a um, journalist par excellence, a investigative journalist of many years' experience, um as well as a a author of, of several books uh, to which he's also contributed. Um he'll be joining me in a few minutes. Later in the show we're gonna be chatting to um Henny uh, all the way from Heelbrow, just over the the ridge, and Henny spent uh, his entire life from 1971, being born in Heelbrow all the way through to now, where he now runs the most successful security company in Heelbrow that's basically taking back the streets. So an exciting show today. We're first going to start off with Stefan Hofstetter chatting about his book "License to Loot," and then we're going to be chatting um, to Henny all about the the company Bad Boys. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be live with Stefan Hofstetter.
1: You're listening to Confidential
0: Brief with Chad. Thomas. Well, now that my sabbatical is over, I need to try to get my mojo back. And helping me get my mojo back is none other than investigative journalist and author Stefan Hofstetter, whose latest book, License to Loot, is flying off the shelves. Steph, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. Thanks for having me. Steph, a very interesting book, um, a book that needs to be read. There's been books that have come out of late relating to state capture, relating to everything pertaining to the so-called Zuma years, et cetera. But no book has gone into the detail um, relating to Eskim as this book. And reading this book was an eye-opener for me because I didn't realize how important Eskim was to our economy, not just as the, the organization that keeps our lights on, but in terms of the revenue that's generated. Tell me more about Eskim before we get into the book. Yeah, I
1: mean, I mean, the book's main focus is ESCOM for the simple reason that it's the state entity that is really the most important to our economy. Uh, you know, if ESCOM is doing well, the economy has the, the platform to grow. And if ESCOM is doing badly, it affects every sector of the economy. And, and also it has so much debt exposure that literally we got a, reached a point in 2017 where, you know, just, just the development bank essay wanted to recall a loan of about 20 billion rand, um, out of several hundred billion owed by, uh, ESCOM. And that risked a run on all government debt. So, In actual fact, it it poses a risk to the entire economy of the country which is what makes it so crucial and which is why if escom is being run badly it's not only that you know power uh, electricity prices have gone up 400% um, you know in the last 10 years when demand has dropped it's not only the fact that you know we need we need cheap electricity to grow the economy but it, because of its 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 risk uh, systemic risk to the entire economy what is
0: what makes it so important now people have, have walked up to me in the street they've posted on my social media they They've even emailed me to say, you know, why don't you investigate the Guptas? Why don't you investigate this? Why don't you investigate that? And I think this is a very good starting point because I don't think people realize the amount of spend that Eskim has and what a dynamic player it is in terms of the economy. You've spoken about the fact that they keep our lights on and you've spoken about the fact that keeping our lights on has increased exponentially. But talk more about the amount of money that Eskim spends and how big a client it is to everybody from coal miners to transport
1: brokers yeah so i mean eskom spends about 177 billion rand a year on procurement so that makes it a very tempting target for you know people like the gupta families and and their and their whole patronage network, because there's just so much spent on anything from you know high end boilers to fancy financial products, where you get uh, enormous commissions um, to catering contracts. So, so the the opportunities for for looting are are immense. Then then we start looking at the coal contracts. Eskom spends about fifty billion rand a year on coal alone, and its and its single largest expense is primary energy, and that's where the opportunities started started growing because we had the traditionally uh the big mining companies like Anglo and Exaro having the the bulk of the the coal contracts and rightly so we started talking about opening them up to new players getting black empowerment involved even though the, you know the older players were becoming empowered uh but the opportunities for smaller newer players started opening up and that's where there was a big gap 50 billion rand a year now you can start talking about big money that uh, these contracts um you know involve and and that's Again, the Guptas started eyeing some of those really big, big contracts.
0: Now, what I found bizarre is in a section of your book, you write about Henri Colonel Brian Molefe actually funding um, a third-party service provider that's not yet a third-party service provider, the funding to buy – a mine so that they can become a third party service provider. I've never heard of this business model in my life. And of course I'm referring to when Deep Throat called you to advise you that Brian Molefe had basically signed off on a deal which was a preemptive deal. It was to buy in advance coal from the Gupta's so they could buy Glencore. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, it's the most astonishing business model. And it actually started in the December before that particular incident was in April 2016. But they'd been building up to, to the purchase of, of Optimum for several months. And, um, after, you know, what uh, I basically call a shakedown after making the conditions for Glencore impossible to continue running the mine and towards De- December 2015, uh, they were actually were looking at a 1.8 billion rand prepayment for uh, coal from a mine that the Guptas didn't own yet. That particular deal didn't go through, um, and the Guptas then sh- uh, scrambled around looking for looking for enough money, and they were roughly 600 million rand short. Now we also have to bear in mind that around December 2015, a new player entered the game, and that was Pre- uh, Duduzani Zuma, the president's son. So 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 Glencore suddenly found themselves negotiating not only with the Friends of the president, but also the family of the president. Um, but as I said, there was 600 million rand short in April, and uh, everyone was asking, you know, the deal has been announced; it's, it's all going ahead in a couple of days; uh, it's going to be signed, and everyone was wondering where they're going to find the money. And that's and suddenly it was announced the money has been found. And, and two days later, you know, my deep throat phoned me and said, "Well, they found the money because Brian Malefer gave them. He, he at the time said gave them two billion rand. It was actually the six hundred and sixty million rand short. And again, it was money for coal from a mine they didn't even own. So it was in in essence, it was a it was a interest free loan, uh, courtesy of the South African taxpayer."
0: You you gave your your deep throat an alias in the book. You you call him Calvin. As an investigative journalist with many years' experience, how reliant are you on a deep throat type source
1: look i think I think there 's a lot of of risk in in basing uh, the thrust of any story or the bulk of any story on sources uh, so you, you you always have to be careful that the stories aren 't purely source based because there 's a lot of danger in in that uh you know sources have different agendas and the information might be skewed in a different direction so it's, so it's pretty important to to get verification from those sources and to try and try and get uh you know supporting documents or you know, if possible telephonic recordings and that type of thing but at the same time it is critically important to to have sources who are very close to the action and in this particular case uh this this source uh, it was very connected both in the ruling party and what's happening inside parastatals and the decision making corridors of power as well as in the banking sector. And that's what made him, you know, bringing those two flows of information together meant, meant he was a very valuable source. So, so sources are crucial. You, there just has to be a great care taken to
0: verify the information they provide. Steph, I was at the launch of, of your book in, in Melbourne Love Books and I remember the introduction, and while you were chatting about the introduction, I thought to myself, why don't they call this book The President's Son? But that being said, License to Loot is an incredible name. But thinking about sons acting as proxies for their fathers leads me to my next question. What do you think of this latest narrative that has emerged regarding Nene and his son receiving benefit from the PIC?
1: Look, I think for me... I'm glad you raised, brought up the title because for me the, the notion of the license to loot came with the, uh, using the development state almost as a, as a Trojan horse for allowing networks of pat- patronage to, to, to flourish. And really for me the lesson to be learned out of all of this is that as long as we allow patronage networks, which in Zuma's case didn't even just It didn't even involve the party. It was literally his own family. If we allow those things to trump the, the national interest or the public interest, we, we're going to come up with the same problem over and over again. So, so for me, the Nene example is certainly not as extreme as this, but it's still a reflection of the, of that type of model, of that type of business model where, where you are, you are, uh, you know, decisions are being made to further the interests of patronage networks rather than the economy at large or the country at large or the people who voted you into power.
0: Now, it seems that patronage has got its claws into virtually every major politician because when, when one looks at the deputy... Um, Secretary General of of the ruling party, Jessie Duarte, her son has now been implicated in various shenanigans of sorts. And it seems like patronage has been the the nature of the beast. Um, Do you believe that it's patronage or do you believe it's corruption by proxy? Well,
1: I think, I think patronage is sometimes the soft end, but, but it, it certainly becomes fertile ground for corruption by proxy. And that's where part of what I sought to do in this book was to look at seminal moments. So I looked at Early days of the Zuma presidency, for example, where um, you know uh, the, the um Bladen Zuma, the head of the Communist Party, and Zwelinzima uh, Vavi, the head of the Kasatu, the, the Labour Federation, key key players in the, the ANC's, you know, uh, uh, in the uh, in the tripartite alliance, alliance actually travelled with Zuma to, to Equatorial Guinea, um, and there, along along arrives, uh, you know, Duduzani Zuma and Rajesh Gupta and they get, you know, they get taken into a private meeting with uh, President Obiang of Equatorial Guinea, and this was before Zuma became president of the country. He was president of the party, but for me, those moments set the tone for the, for the Zuma presidency, and so I try to look at several moments like that, and I, I think the example that you're raising now, uh, again, there are, there are moments that we should be on the lookout for now because in a couple of years' time, we're probably going to have further leaks of, of emails and recordings which show that, again, that we're replicating these these types of patronage models So it brings me back to my original point That if we can't move outside of that Of that system um, of, of, of power brokering if, if we can't start making The primary focus is, is Clean governance and and you know Our rulers serving the people Who've elected them and rather than, than Their family and their friends and their networks uh, Then we, we're simply going to have a repeat of, of, of
0: everything that's in this book Steph what I found fascinating In your book was When you chatted about Dubai... Um, you make mention of an Italian journalist that wrote a book a few years ago where he went around the world looking for deposed dictators, etc. And I found that very fascinating. You then talk about Dubai as having this incredible image to the world. You talk about um, pretty police women driving Bentleys and Porsches and Ferraris so that they can project this image to the world of sophistication, of beauty, of being advanced, etc. And you then talk about the darker side. You have another deep throat, a fixer, somebody in Dubai that's assisting you. And this person tells you about where the secret police camp out, who they spy on, what happens, how they torture, how a woman journalist was taken into custody and if she hadn't spoken about her relationship or her so- supposed friendship with the one Sheikh, for all intents and purposes she may have been tortured. Now, when we talk about Dubai I like to look at parallels. So when look, one looks at Isle of Man, one looks at the Cayman Islands, one looks at banks like Ansbach, et cetera. They've always laundered money, but you never saw the despots setting up camp there. It seems a little bit different with Dubai. It seems like it's very secretive, and if somebody wants to not just hide money, but to hide themselves in plain sight, that would be the place to go. Yeah, I think Dubai is fascinating, and, and again,
1: we had access to a source of mine who was, I can't speak a lot about him, but, but he, but he certainly was very connected in, in, in that particular country. And he started describing how the, how easy it is to, to, to hide, um, you know, your ill-gotten gains, but, but also just, just how the government of Dubai and, well, of the Emirates, uh, the, the UAE was very averse to, to bad publicity. So the rules are simply this, that you, as long as you stay under the radar, there aren't too many questions asked about the money you bring in. And we, we actually went around with an estate agent uh, who you know was telling us stories about Saudis arriving in their private jets with with you know briefcases uh, full of money to buy properties there, and so it really seems to be a society where on the on the surface e- even money laundering legislation uh, they come across as as trying to do a lot to to you know combat money laundering, but uh, behind the scenes it. it Certainly is the pla- is, is, a, is a favored destination of despots who have looted their countries blind um, as you mentioned the Italian journalist book of of traveling around the world to to meet some of those despots and it 's a favored location of those despots to to spend their money and it, it, the thought occurred to me that, you know, what if we actually arrived there to see Jacob Zuma actually arriving at Emirate Hills, which is where the Guptas bought a property, and there was some evidence suggesting that it, it was possibly a property going to be for Jacob Zuma himself, and we, and we actually pictured him, you know, arriving uh, at this place and climbing out of a limousine with, uh, with, with, with briefcases bulging with cash, and it just suddenly didn't seem so far-fetched because so many uh, former despots actually do have properties there. And have squirreled away a lot of their uh, Funds in Dubai
0: You're listening to Confidential Brief My name is Chad Thomas I'm in conversation with the with the, with, with the author Of License to Loot, Steph Hofstetter You can join the conversation on WhatsApp 061-895-1019 Or you can SMS us 34519 You're listening to Confidential Brief With Chad Thomas You're listening to Confidential Brief. My name is Chad Thomas, and we have an exclusive interview today with Stefan Hofstadter. It is his first interview since the launch of the book License to Loot, which is flying off the shelves. It is something that is so topical. However... What I found about this book compared to the other books that I've read is that it's an easy read. It's not a textbook, but most importantly, it outlines exactly how the plunder took place. And that analogy we gave you earlier is just the touch, just the tip of the iceberg. Steph, what did you learn? When, ...when writing this, because you've been involved with many stories over the years. What came to mind when you wrote this book that surprised you the most? For me, it was just the blatant corruption. What was it for you? Look, w- one of the most difficult things
1: was to pull all the strands together and to actually be quite disciplined about saying, you know, which deals am I going to focus on? You know, many of them will be familiar to to your listeners uh, at the Optimum deal we've just spoken about. There's several others uh, involving Trillion and McKinsey and so on. And uh, And it was about taking that discipline and saying, you know, who are the main characters and which are the main deals, and trying to weave these together into a coherent narrative that 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 actually becomes a readable book. And what what struck me once I did that was was just the um, just the depth and the complexity of of this actual looting scheme. You know, just how people had been quite forward thinking in placing key. Uh, people in, 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 you know, positions in parastatals, uh, you know, the, 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 the finance committee at ESCOM and the procurement. Uh, the adjudication committee, the same at Transnet, which was a, which was a model that was replicated at ESCOM later. And so I, I suppose, you know, you, you often, when you, when you're in the new cycle, whether, whether you're producing it or, or consuming it, it, it often feels quite atomized. But when you pull it all together and you see the, the depth of thought and, and, and sort of plotting that went into covering all your bases to make sure that you've got the right people in the right place so that when that deal comes up for Consideration that you make sure you get that deal when there's an assessment. You know, for example, at Transnet when you're assessing the, the need for increasing the number of locomotives that you buy, you get the the right consultants in to give, give you the result that you want, so that you can then justify to Treasury to uh, you know to spend 50 billion rand on, on on locomotives that you might not need. So, so I think it's really the breadth of of the of the the, the
0: sort of. The entire the scheme, which which struck me when I when I pulled it all together, Steph. Before we wrap up, I, I obviously have to end on a controversial note, and that's going to be about white monopoly capital. I need to ask the obvious question that people are asking on social media, etc. I have always said that there's a symbiotic relationship between the public and private sector, that being the plunder of the of the public purse, the treasury. We hear about the Guptas. All the time the Guptas have become synonymous with corruption in South Africa, but what about the other corruptors why don 't we hear as much about the other corruptors? yeah I think white monopoly capital is a
1: is a fascinating aspect of this whole thing, and that 's why if you if you look at my chapter on Glencore, you'll see that I spent quite a bit of time looking into the history of Glencore and, you know, the, its predecessors and and how, you know, the allegations of sanctions busting under apartheid, uh, the controversies that surround this company in, in other parts of Africa, especially in Zambia, where uh, there were accusations of, of transfer pricing and and really just, you know, extracting a lot of money from Zambia and from Africa and not not putting a lot back in and so the the that aspect of the story is quite important especially when you look at the mining deals because as i said earlier uh, the, the 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 50 billion rand spent on coal that eskom spends on coal the bulk of that money went to traditionally white companies now those companies started transforming uh, Exaro is a is a is a classic case in point and then you know the, the the space was open for smaller players, and that's where the Guptas climbed in. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't an issue with 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 you know traditionally white owned companies initially getting getting the lion's share. And so that is a debate that that's in that's an important part of the picture. Uh, I think that the the issue there really was that those so called tired mines that were built on the coal fields are much cheaper coal. So that just brings to the fore the need to transform those mines and those. Those, those transformation efforts have been happening. But with a company like Glencore, um, you know, there's a part in my book where, where I suggest that there's a theory that Glencore didn't only sell its mine, uh, at a, at a discount to the Guptas, but got something in return in the form of an oil deal. Because Glencore is an incredibly successful company with, with a lot of controversy in many other countries. And, uh, anyone who's written about Glencore would find, find it really hard pressed to believe that they would do anything for nothing. And I think that that, that's, that, Part of the debate uh, that that should come
0: through in the book as well in the last eight weeks, the much anticipated extradition treaty between South Africa and Dubai was finally signed into law. Do you think this is going to make a difference, and do you think the Guptas will ever stand trial in South Africa
1: i think I think that 's anyone 's guess. Um, I know that when I was in Dubai speaking to one of my sources there, he said that both the Guptas and the President at the time President Jacob Zuma, the bad publicity surrounding them was becoming an embarrassment for the Dubai government and the, or the emirati government and they didn't and they don 't like that kind of heat and so my suspicion is that they are probably wanting to co- to cooperate. But whether that means that the Guptas w- would return here, I-, I very much doubt it. I suspect that they would, they would look at ways of externalizing their funds from Dubai and finding another uh, bolt hole to, you know, to live, uh, live large on money that they've extracted from South African taxpayers.
0: Steph, thank you very much for joining us today. License to Loot is available in all good bookstores. It is a comprehensive breakdown. On just how plunder can take place and how people can be placed in strategic positions with the intention. And remember, that's the important part here, the intent to plunder our national treasury. Stefan Hofstadter, law, author of License Salute. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Chad.